country where we're not used to air conditioning, it's very painful to have to speak suddenly in an air-conditioned atmosphere. One loses one's voice. This is going to be a very odd talk, and if it doesn't seem odd, then there's something wrong with it. Um, what I want to do, I'll start with a quotation from Rousseau, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, which put into English is this. He who dares to undertake the making of a people's institutions ought to feel himself capable, so to speak, of changing human nature. That's from book two of the social contract. My thesis is, my lifetime thesis is, that the time has come to institute the human race globally. That's to say, in lawyers' terms, to constitutionalize the world, the whole world. And that's what I spend my life on, that project. And the interesting thing that Rousseau said was that that involves changing human nature. And of course, the commonly held view is that human nature cannot be changed. It's a sort of given, the myth of human nature. So what I'm going to try and suggest to you, and really I'm trying to... Uh, cause some of you to join in this project, some of you will reject it almost in limine as they say but what I want to do is to say that the time has come to change human nature and the time has come to change the course of human history to do those things at the global level he says Alexander Hamilton said in the first of the Federalist Papers to try and do that now by reflection and choice, not by accident and force. So that, for me, is the greatest challenge of the 21st century. And to correct Francis Fukuyama's earlier book, we could call it History's New Beginning. That's the project, or to echo Karl Marx, we might call it the end of humanity's pre-history. That's what I want to try and engage you in. So we're talking global revolution, and it's an unusual sort of revolution, or so it seems, a revolution in the mind, a revolution in the species mind, as Marx also called it, of the human species. It's a revolution that will involve reinstituting humanity, or instituting humanity, and reinstituting all human societies, and therefore all human self-consciousness, the consciousness of what it is to be human. And so a revolution in the mind probably requires a revolutionary philosophy. And you may remember that that's how Edmund Burke and de Tocqueville described or understood the French Revolution. Edmund Burke said it is, quote, a revolution of doctrine and theoretic dogma in the thoughts on French affairs a revolution of doctrine and theoretic dogma. And de Tocqueville, in his book on the, ancient, on the old regime, l'ancien regime, said, quote, the French Revolution, though ostensibly political in origin, functioned on the lines and assumed many of the aspects of a religious revolution. So they both likened the French Revolution to the Reformation, which was clearly, at least in some sense, a revolution in the mind. 
And one of the things that the English poet William Wordsworth said on the French Revolution, or the period of the French Revolution, was that human nature seemed born again. And that was the feeling they had at the time, that something absolutely fundamental had changed in the human condition. And of course, retrospectively, we may doubt whether those uh, exalted ideas were real and accurate and sensible. But that's certainly how it felt, and there's no doubt the French Revolution did, in some sense, change the world. So that's what the great question is. What shall be the global revolutionary philosophy? That sounds very Nietzschean. It's a sort of question he would throw off on any grey afternoon. What shall be the global revolutionary philosophy? And that's the question I'm going to answer, try to answer today. And it involves two corollary questions. The first is, what is the social function of philosophy? And the second question is, what is philosophy? So those are the questions I'm going to be dealing with. And I thought that to spoil the fun and to reduce anxiety levels, I might give the answers now. Um, it save you having to wait, and I know some of you have to leave. Um, so I'll give the answers now. And they, the first, what shall be the world's revolutionary philosophy? The world's philosophy will be idealism. What's the social function of philosophy? The social function of philosophy is the self-perfecting of human society. What is philosophy? Philosophy is the self-perfecting of the human mind. And having stated those as conclusions, you might think that they sound much more like axioms, uh, prejudicial axioms. And so they, of course, are. They are prescriptive definitions or prescriptive accounts. So the kind of statement that is given in answer to those questions will sound, I'm sure to some people here, particularly those of you who are professional philosophers, will sound quaint and old-fashioned. Surely only somebody for whom 20th century philosophy didn't happen could possibly say such fantastic things. Indeed, who could say such a thing if they'd experienced the 20th century at all? It sounds completely impossible. How can anyone seriously say such things in the 21st century? Surely the 20th century has demonstrated finally the meaninglessness of the old kind of philosophy, philosophy in the great post-Socratic tradition. Surely the spirit of the age, about which everybody is a confident commentator, the spirit of the age has decreed that to use essentialist language, or still worse, transcendentalist language, is to talk gibberish, as Richard Rorty might have said, and in fact did say, is to talk gibberish, or to talk nonsense, as Wittgenstein might have said and did say. So that's the first thing I want to consider. Where did the 20th century get this idea from that philosophy is impossible? It's strange, philosophy's capacity to attack itself, to be its own executioner. And recalling the words of Cassius in Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, myself have to mine own turned enemy. Why did philosophy attack itself, perhaps lethally, in the 20th century? Well, philosophy is intrinsically and always has been dialectical in character. 
Pascal seemed to suggest an interesting idea that there may be something in the physical basis of the human mind that when we think one thing, it stimulates the thought of the opposite. That may be, he suggested, one reason why philosophy is dialectical in character. Philosophy is always negating its affirmations in the form of new affirmations. And that, in the formula of Spinoza and Hegel and Husserl and others, seems to be a central principle of philosophy, that an affirmation is a negation. And a negation, if you're feeling optimistic, is an affirmation. So that in the history of philosophy, this sort of basic 101 history of philosophy, Socrates, Plato negated the sophists and the materialists. Aristotle negated Plato. Bacon negated Aquinas. Locke negated Hobbes. Descartes negated Locke. Hume negated Locke. Kant negated Hume. Hegel negated Kant. Marx negated Hegel. Schopenhauer negated Hegel, and so on and on. It's a very interesting fact that the way philosophy has progressed at the highest level, most creative level, has been a sort of process of aufhebung, as the Hegelians call it. Dialectical enrichment, each building on the other by disagreeing with the other. But there's also been a philosophical tradition which you might call vernichtung, um, which is quite different from aufhebung. It's extreme skepticism about the claims of philosophy. And from Carneades, 150 years after Aristotle onwards, there's been a very powerful tradition of radical skepticism. But philosophical nihilism, seems to have reached a sort of frenzy in the late 19th century and throughout the 20th century. I just thought I'd read a list of the isms, the anti-philosophical isms. Sophism, Pyrrhonism, Skepticism, Empiricism, Nominalism, Materialism, Realism, Relativism, Nihilism, Positivism, Naturalism, Hermeneutics, Pragmatism, Neo-Pragmatism, Logical Positivism, Phenomenology, Existentialism, Analytical and Linguistic Philosophy, Structuralism, Postmodernism, and Deconstructionism. It's an extraordinary story of philosophy attacking itself. That would be fine the richness of philosophy would have been rich in its own self-denying if those had all been productive of greater philosophy on the dialectical principle. But something happened in the 20th century and there developed an idea, even among some professional philosophers, of what us old-fashioned philosophers would call the impossibility of philosophy. Un-philosophy became the central activity of many philosophers. But of course part of the problem is that you can't prove the possibility of another type of philosophy, but nor can you prove the impossibility of another type of philosophy, what I'm going to call true philosophy. To quote St. Augustine from Book 10 of the Confessions, that amazing book about philosophy and psychology, Quote, therefore is the mind too straight to contain itself. Or Pascal said, man infinitely transcends man. In other words, there's a sort of girdle barrier, which means that the human mind can't study itself as if it were not studying itself. 
The human mind can't form final general views about itself. The mind is too straight to contain itself, too narrow to contain itself. So the impossibility of philosophy, like the possibility of philosophy, can't be proved. Now the strangest thing of all, because that might be just fashions within the philosophy industry, but the strangest thing is that philosophical nihilism, the triumphant rise of anti-philosophy and unphilosophy, coincided with a century in which ideas in the form of ideology were rampant and terrible in which the human world made by the human mind seemed intent on destroying itself physically. And the truth is, of course, that we live philosophy even when we're not talking or doing philosophy. We're doomed to do philosophy in all that we do. The 19th century did philosophy, the 19th century, in countless half-revolutions and failed revolutions in which ideas played a major part. The 20th century did philosophy in the gas chamber and the gulag and the killing fields on four continents. Bad philosophy is a form of human evil, one of the worst forms of human evil, bad philosophy, because bad philosophy corrupts and destroys human beings by the million. And it could now destroy corrupt and destroy all humanity. If we globalize bad philosophy, it could destroy humanity. We could now be on the point of corrupting and destroying all humanity. So the thesis is, and it's a polemical thesis, I'm not putting forward this talk as an academic talk, it's polemical. The polemical thesis is that good philosophy might redeem humanity. And in my view, that's our reason for being as philosophers, the redeeming potentiality of philosophy. And to quote from the Book of Kings, and after the earthquake a fire, and after the fire a still small voice. So the still small voice of philosophy after the horrors of the 20th century is perhaps worth pursuing. I now want to consider secondly, so that's the first problem, the rise and rise of unphilosophy and its terrible realization in human reality. I want to now consider why this happened, why this self-destruction of philosophy happened. And one answer is the well-known answer that philosophy seemed to lose its self-confidence turned against itself, surrendered in the face of the rise of natural science and the so-called human sciences. And if we look historically, we could say that in the 17th century, two possible routes opened up for the self-affecting human mind. And in homage to Marcel Proust, I'm going to call them the Bacon Way and the Descartes Way, du côté de chez Bacon and du côté de chez Descartes. I'm not sure it has any other relevance beyond that rather charming illusion. Well, the Bacon way led or misled philosophers into the quicksand of the human sciences, the jungle of the human sciences, into the idea that the proper study of things human is the study of things human as if they were not human. That's the human sciences. 
it's human naturalism. And human naturalism is one of the many enemies of true philosophy. The spectacular theoretical and practical successes of the natural sciences made philosophy seem sort of worthless insofar as it might have the pretension to be a search for truth. I don't myself believe philosophy was ever a search for truth, but many people have thought that it was. And then it seemed to the more weak-minded kind of philosopher, especially professional philosophers, that only the scientific method could sensibly claim to be a source of some truth. And then, as we all know, philosophers got to work on the problem of the philosophy of science and discovered that even science only creates a sort of truth, provisional and constructive. The other way, the Descartes way, which led to Locke and Leibniz and Hume and Kant and Hegel and Schopenhauer, was what Hegel said that he meant by philosophy, the thinking of thinking, the self-consciousness of consciousness, consciousness thinking about itself, on the assumption that the self-study of human consciousness is itself an activity of consciousness. It's a difficult and dangerous study, consciousness studying itself. Perhaps it's an ultimate study, the study of all studies, and certainly a necessary study. And it could be a world-transforming study. So what I want to do now is to suggest how we do change the course of human history through changing our ideas. And where I'm going to start by doing that, and those of you who are full-time philosophers must excuse what follows, which will be, seem rather elementary to you, but bear in mind the polemical purpose, which is my way of avoiding academic criticism. If I say that it's really polemical, you're not entitled to criticize it as academic philosophy. What I want to now list are the principles of true philosophy for those of us who believe in the idealist tradition. I'm going to say what the great tradition of philosophy means. It's the tradition which actually made the present human world, the tradition which mysteriously ended with Hegel and Schopenhauer, like a great roadway stopping suddenly in the middle of nowhere. It's as if a great roadway was being constructed and suddenly it comes to an end in the middle of a wasteland, the great tradition of philosophy. So what I'm suggesting as our great intellectual challenge now is to resume the great tradition. It's an extraordinary thought that we just simply take it up again as if the 20th century, well not as if the 20th century hadn't existed because we've learned some important things from even the nihilism of the 20th century. And this great tradition of philosophy will now be taken up at the level of all humanity, at the global level. So the first principle of the true philosophy, the post-Socratic philosophy, uh, which will also be the first principle of globalized idealism, is that the human mind makes the human world. We live in a second habitat made out of ideas. It follows that we can change the habitat we live in, the second habitat, by means of ideas. New ideas, new world, new world, new ideas. New ideas, new powers. I probably don't need to pursue that. It's quite obvious that we just live in a vast <laughs> structure of ideas. And what I find it very difficult to get students to realize is that all these ideas were just created by somebody. 
and sitting in Cambridge, I say to them, people just sitting in rooms like this have invented all these ideas. Why shouldn't we change them? Somebody's invented them. They didn't appear from the sky or on tablets of stone. So we've constructed a total world out of ideas, and there's no reason in principle why we couldn't change it tomorrow. The second principle is philosophy's moral imperative. The Descartes way contains a feature about which Descartes himself was charmingly frank. True philosophy is ruled by a sort of moral imperative. Pure reason is a form of practical reason. The mind can think anything capriciously and randomly. It's got a natural freedom, creative freedom, apparently unlimited capacity to make worlds from ideas. But the rational mind, what we used to call the rational mind, is the mind thinking about itself in accordance with an imperative. The rational mind is the mind trying to think well. And good philosophizing, what we used to call rationality, is a subset of goodness in general. It's a form of virtue, to use the word virtue in both of its Aristotelian senses, a virtuous mental disposition on the part of the philosopher and virtuous behavior in the act of philosophizing so we think about what others have thought when they were trying to think well and we try to think better and that aspect, the moral imperative of philosophy the moral imperative of consciousness thinking about itself may also sound crazy to a 20th century or 21st century mind but true philosophy then as a moral activity the human mind seeking to perfect itself the struggle of philosophy, the dialectical struggle, is then a struggle of human self-redeeming. Even the denial of philosophy, a sort of sin against the Holy Ghost, a sin of uh, despair, the denial of philosophy is a sort of dark night of the human mind when we experience emptiness, nothingness, from Nietzsche onwards, in order to rediscover, as he was trying to do, fullness and hope the joy of knowing, the joy of thinking better, the joy of becoming something better. And somebody defined education in that way very well, that it's not about learning things, but it's about becoming something different. So pure reason is a form of practical reason. Rationality is a moral category. That means that we approach, Francis Bacon said that we had to approach nature and the humble fashion to be commanded, nature must be obeyed. Immanuel Kant in the preface to the second edition of the Critique of Pure Reason said that reason in order to be taught by nature must approach it, quote, not in the character of a pupil who listens to everything that the teacher chooses to say, but of an appointed judge who compels the witnesses to answer questions which he himself has formulated. So the philosopher of human things is not merely a servant of the actual. Nature in the natural sciences seems to be an actual that the scientist tries to understand. So there's a scientific moral rationality. Scientists are incredibly moral people. They are endlessly trying to do better, think better. And in my view that is also the professional duty of the philosopher think a better world and Karl Marx said it twice that 
philosophy is designed not merely to interpret but to change the world. The third principle of the true philosophy is universalism. The great post-Socratic tradition is not a philosophy of the Western mind. It's a philosophy of the human mind. It originated in a particular cultural contingency but it spoke to universal self-consciousness. The Greeks, the ancient Greeks, were very conscious of cultural diversity, not only among themselves, Aristotle's 58 constitutions that he studied, but also the cultural diversity of other civilizations, some of them much more ancient than Greek civilization. So what the Greek philosophers thought they were doing was not simply what nowadays is called Western philosophy. They were thinking about the universal nature of the human mind, and as you know, what they saw was that there is a space between mythology and religion on the one hand and natural science on the other. There's a space for philosophy in that area, something which is not mythology and religion, but is rather like it in its claims to explain everything. And is not merely scientific inquiry on the other hand, because it's about things human. It's not simply about nature, the natural world. So true philosophy would be a way of thinking about our thinking about the world, particularly the world which we have made. It would be a form of universalism which would distinguish itself from the universalism of mythology and religion and science, but would still make a universal claim. For us idealists, every is sentence is or is derived from a philosophical position, a good or a bad philosophical position, because the verb to be is something that the mind does to all that it's able to think and speak about. What we call the real is the real presented in the form of ideas. The human mind is a mirror of nature, but a mirror that thinks. The human mind is a speculum spectans, and I'd be interested to know whether anybody has ever heard that phrase used before in the history of philosophy. I think I may have just invented it. A speculum spectans, a mirror that sees. Human thought is a radius reflexus, as Bacon said, the mind thinking about itself. And um, more than that, of course, there are models within which we live. The sets of ideas created by philosophy, like the sets of ideas created by natural science, are places for living. Ideas are where we live. So our confidence in the ideas that we have is a measure of our confidence in the capacity we have to be rational and universalizing. So rationality is the mathematics of philosophy, the justification of its universalist claim. Well, the fourth principle is the idea of the ideal. The true philosophy is not only universal in its claim, it's a universalizing process. It constructs an ideal world as a permanent potentiality of the human world. And in my view, the greatest benefit which true philosophy in the post-Socratic tradition has bestowed on the human race is the idea of the ideal. Because the world-making human mind can think a better world. A wonderful thing. True philosophy 
has made the human mind into a relentless servant and agent of the human will in the making of a better world. And the ideal, the idea of the ideal is not merely, I'm now going to mention Aristotle's three uh, revisionist views of Plato. Again, real philosophers must forgive this. Um, the ideal is not merely a synthesizing concept. It's not merely a human purpose. It's not merely a human potentiality. That was Aristotelian revisionism. The ideal in the Platonic sense is an energizing force within the human universe. I would call it a logos of the good in the human universe or a logos of the human libido. I think that's probably not been said before, uh, ever. It's a terrible thing to try and find things that have never been said. It's almost impossible. But I think the idea that the ideal is a logos of the human libido may not have been said before this afternoon. Um, and then the final principle, and obviously what I'm going to do in a moment is to contrast all this with what actually is going on in the globalizing world, which is something 180 degrees different. So the fifth and final principle is public enlightenment. But so before I start talking about what's going on in the global mind at the moment, we have to face the fact that philosophy in this great tradition was a social activity. What Plato and Aristotle saw was that it matters greatly what ideas people have in their minds. And the ideas people have in their minds come from somewhere. And that somewhere is, on the one hand, somewhere deep within our own mind, the unconscious mind. But also, ideas come from outside our mind, from other people's minds, above all from society including society's inherited conglomerate, as Gilbert Murray called it. What we find when we are born into a society is that it already contains a vast mass of ideas, the inherited conglomerate, which we inherit, which was there before we were born, and which we will be there, or something like it will be there when we die. So what Plato and Aristotle saw was that this matters a very great deal what societies think. We are what we think, and a society is what it thinks. So the human mind is a political mind. The Zoan politikon has a noose politikos, one might say. And that's why Plato and Aristotle were so much concerned with both things, contemplation and education. That's why Rousseau said that Plato's Republic is essentially a treatise on education. So that true philosophy and its social function is a permanent part of education, of enlightenment, enlightenment of society. Okay, well, if that in ludicrously telegraphic form is the concept of idealism that I have in mind, which I call the great tradition of philosophy, which there is no reason why we should not simply resume in the 21st century. I now want to look at the mental superstructure of democracy and capitalism. Because if one takes a prescriptive definition of globalization, as you know, there are 100 definitions of it, and there are people who say that it 
is a meaning of and so on. But what I'm going to mean by globalization is a social process which is tending to cause all human societies to develop in similar ways. A social process which is tending to cause all human societies to develop in similar ways. And so what I'm calling in the title of this talk the philosophy of globalization means the ideas which explain and justify this social process. So the philosophy of globalization means that there's also a social process which is tending to cause the public minds of all human societies to develop in similar ways. Human consciousness is developing in similar ways. Well, in that process of globalization defined in that way, there seems to be a dominant thing, a particular state of the human world, imagined and made in a relatively small number of human societies, namely those societies which preach and practice something which is called very broadly and approximately democracy and capitalism, or more strictly democracy, capitalism with a hyphen. Democracy, capitalism is actualized philosophy. It's a system of actualized philosophy as much as it's an institutional system. And to propagate the institutional systems of democracy, capitalism, is also to propagate its philosophy. So one of the greatest challenges of the 21st century is to understand democracy capitalism in the light of its potentiality, mental potentiality. And what we have to try and do is form a view of the actuality and the potentiality of the mental superstructure of democracy capitalism, which is a very big and difficult task. One of the things Hegel said, everybody picks their own sayings from Hegel in the hope that nobody will notice all the other things that one is not quoting him for. But one of the things he said was philosophy is its own age comprehended in thought. And I think there's a very great utility in that remark. Philosophy is its own age comprehended in thought. And that means philosophy is conscious of the world that it is talking about and talking to. So to understand the mental superstructure of democracy capitalism is a sort of revolutionary challenge for philosophy. It's immensely difficult, particularly for those of us who live in the middle of democracy capitalism. And indeed, it's a sort of un-American activity, I suppose, to say what I'm about to say about democracy capitalism. I looked on the immigration forms I came in yesterday to see very carefully that question that they ask. Something about have you ever sought to foment revolution or subversion or something? And I hesitated for a moment <laughs> whether to tick the yes box or the no box. Um, since the United States is perhaps the, as it were, the focus and heart of the philosophy of globalization. Well, it contains a feature, democracy capitalism, which is very difficult to deal with philosophically. And it's very hard to express, and I'd be grateful for your assistance in this. It's, it's an idea which one can grasp, but which is very difficult to express. What it's done, democracy capitalism, is to make itself more or less immune to philosophical transcendence. Somehow, it's very difficult to apply the dialectic of the ideal to a system which seems designed to exclude its own negation. Democracy capitalism has disarmed its own surpassing 
it negates the possibility of its own negating to such an extent that somebody can write a book about it called The End of History. Um, it seems to present, try to present itself as something new and different in kind from all the other social systems and processes that have gone before it. And I just want to consider for a moment how it's achieved that, how democracy capitalism has negated the possibility of its own negation. And the first element in it is naturalism. Because part of the philosophy of democracy capitalism is naturalism, that there are processes of systematic causation which produce outputs, which are more than the sum of the inputs, and which are then regarded as desirable outputs because of the nature of the system that produced them. That's true of both democracy and capitalism. These processes of systematic causation obviously centre around the market and the general will, closely analogous conceptual systems. So the naturalistic myth disarms dialectical, especially ethical opposition, because it suggests that the product of the market and the product of the general will are meta-rational and meta-ethical. They're not the fruit of human thinking or human willing in the ways with which pure and practical reason are traditionally concerned. It's impossible, as it were, to judge in the ordinary ethical sense the market and the general will. So negation is also contained in the very systems of democracy and capitalism. They are both systems of systematized negation, the market and the general will. The market includes a permanent dialectic of competition. That's the way it works. That's the whole po point and purpose of it. That are, in other words, the forces in the market, which are forces deriving originally from ideas, meet in a non-mental situation, quasi-material situation, and oppose each other. Similarly, with the general will, there is a permanent, it's a central idea that there is a permanent dialectic of political opposition. The system includes the idea of opposition within the formation of social decisions. So the system can very easily say, there's nothing to stop you opposing anything you want to oppose. There's freedom of expression, freedom of assembly, whatever. Um, I call that systematic totalitarianism. Democracy capitalism is probably the most extreme form of totalitarianism ever invented. It's total taking over of human life and the human mind. Incredible achievement. So that's the first uh, particularity of democracy and capitalism. The second is the idea of progress. The idea there is that the products of the market of the general will are necessarily the actualizing of the better. So there's the idea that democracy capitalism is a permanent process of social self-perfecting. It doesn't need ideas, transcendental ideas of human self-perfecting. It is itself a socialized and socializing ethic. It's an internalized ethical system which sees society as an arena of endless change and transformation. I think it was in the third critique that Kant referred, um, had that very beautiful phrase, purposive purposelessness. 
speaking about organic systems. And that's a perfect description of democracy capitalism, purposive purposelessness. In other words, the thing organically is full of purpose, purpose of progress. But that's not necessarily the purpose of those taking part in it. And as you know, Adam Smith, in this most wonderful philosophy of his, borrowing from early 18th century thought, particularly de Mandeville, who, who <coughs> coined the expression private vice, public benefit, capitalism is based on the most marvelous idea, namely that however vicious and self-interested individuals participating are, the organic nature of the system produces the good for society. So the people themselves can be selfish to the nth degree, participants in the system, they can be wicked to the nth degree. But the system organically putting together what they do produces an output which is good for the public benefit. That's the theory of the system. I call that value totalitarianism. It has taken over the idea of value. And the third point, obviously, is pragmatism. The third point about democracy capitalism, which is sort of the in-house philosophy of democracy capitalism. It's very difficult, inhibiting to speak about pragmatism in the United States, um, because one never knows quite how attached people still are to it as the philosophy of the United States. But I've got to say something about it. It's not really a philosophy, pragmatism. It's a philosophy, a philosophy of philosophical denial. It's the philosophy of unphilosophy, pragmatism. And it's the idea, I would say, that the opposition between the ideal and the real is resolved by the actual. That's the central idea, in my view, of pragmatism, that the opposition between the ideal and the real is resolved by the actual. And that comes very close to meaning that the actual is both rational and good. So democratic capitalism thus seems, at least to itself, to be metacultural and metatemporal and classless and value-free. So it's a sort of, and this is what's so tricky about it, it's a sort of distorted or perverted or ironical version of the universal and perennial claims of the great philosophical tradition. It's what I would call intellectual totalitarianism. It's sort of borrowed the idea that there can be transcendental ideas and that those transcendental ideas can determine the way society works. But it is then ruthlessly and relentlessly de-transcendentalized those ideas. So it borrows from the idea of the ideal in some sense that this is a machine for making a better world. But the emphasis is on the word machine. Um, well then those seem to be the structural elements and as I say I'd be very grateful for comments for or against or particularly in addition to understanding the mental superstructure of democracy capitalism but of course the final point about it is that it contains a most peculiar feature which I'm going to refer to as the repressive negation of contradiction It contains values which it contradicts. 
And of course, many commentators on democracy capitalism, particularly in Europe, continental Europe, have made this point. But a very peculiar feature of it is that its value system, which includes things like freedom and equality and happiness and the rule of law and so on, that those seem to be what the old philosophers called a pious practice, praxis pietatis. Their ideals preached and propagated and enforced, but they're not actual. And indeed, a lot of the experience of democracy capitalism is a contradiction of freedom, equality, happiness, the rule of law, and all the others. And so far as freedom is concerned, um, Fukuyama might, picking up something he found in Hegel, suggest that democracy is the final achievement of freedom because Hegel had said it's self, the self-recognizing the selfhood of the other in democratic uh, is the nature of human freedom. And therefore, if you can say that democracy capitalism is the self-recognizing the selfhood of the other, we're all equal citizens in the market and in their general will, then you could, with Fukuyama, argue that freedom had at last been realized. But I don't think you can think that for longer than about five minutes if you look at the reality of our societies where I suspect we feel about as unfree as any tribe has ever felt. And it becomes therefore very much like religion. Uh, I'm going to quote Hume on religion but substitute the word democratic for what he said very rudely about religion. Turn the reverse of the medal, he said, examine the democratic principles which have in fact prevailed in the world, and you will scarcely be persuaded that they are anything but sick men's dreams. Well, he used that about religion, that it was sick men's dreams because of all the ghastly and terrible things that religion has done. The reality of democracy capitalism, if one looks at the reverse of the medal, can be seen as a system of absolute unfreedom, absolute inequality protected by the law. The law acts as a mediator for Mittler, to use another Hegelian term, between the imperious demands of the social system and the residual aspirations of the human individual. And the law is structured in terms of so-called rights, particularly in America, and that means claims of the individual against society the meaning and effect of which are determined by official agents of society, by social institutions. So in a culture of socialized individualism, the individual becomes a social residue, and the law becomes an officious agent of the hegemony of the public mind. And this is going back to John Stuart Mill. The hegemony of the public mind, the empire of social consciousness over individual consciousness, so what we find in democracy capitalism almost as a necessity is the cult of violence, criminal violence and social violence in the criminal law, fantasized violence, terrorism, anarchism, cult of corruption, the understanding that political and economic power are a different moral order or no moral order at all, cult of fantasy, with the minds of the masses locked into a world of manufactured unreality, 
So that democracy capitalism has become a sort of empire of unreality, of fantasy. And in the middle of all this, religion is marginalized or privatized. High culture and fine arts are devalued and commodified, as the Marxists used to say, and transcendental philosophy is scorned and denied. So the cult of unreality is a cult of unreason. And so it's left the field now, a thing that we're worrying very greatly about in Europe, to scientism. Triumphalist science is now a sort of ambiguous residue of transcendentalism within the wasteland of unphilosophy because the sciences produce the goods. But it's beyond the control of transcendental moral rationality, science. Science has a natural ally in pragmatism. So pragmatism respects the dominance of socially formed ideas and the relativity of value and the decline and fall of the idea of truth. And so pragmatism embraces science as a friend and an ally. And so for those of us who are interested in the instituting, as Rousseau put it, constitutionalizing the world, democracy capitalism is a great problem. It is not just any old constitutional system. It is a very peculiar thing. And uh, what the revolutionary challenge that I mentioned at the beginning is, human self-redeeming, is to restore to the center of debate the perennial and universal questions, the nature of the good life and the meaning of happiness. That was what the philosophers saw as the purpose of the self-perfecting human mind to ask the question of the nature of the good life and the meaning of happiness. Democracy and capitalism on this view do not have the answer, perhaps even an answer to those questions. They are not democracy and capitalism a possible means of human self-redeeming. And so the negation the dialectical negation that we now have to bring into the equation at the global level is the negation of democracy, capitalism in the name of the good life and in the name of human happiness. happiness. And dialectical negation, as I say, as an enriching, an aufhebung, not a vernichtung of democracy, capitalism. Democracy, capitalism has produced the goods for millions of people. So the negation of democracy and capitalism is to be one of these fruitful, dialectical, philosophical negations to reassert the transcendental potentiality of the idea of the ideal over an incredibly resistant and resilient form, namely the mental superstructure of democracy, capitalism, at which point I will stop. <laughs>